Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode of Risk, you'll hear Dan Savage. I had another hit of acid, and after I took the second hit of acid, the first one kicked in. <laughs> that and more on this completely uninterrupted presentation of the live show that we did this past December in Seattle. And listen, if you're new to the podcast, be sure to also check out some of our best of Risk episodes as a great way to start to get to know us. Now, before we start, I want to let you know that Risk is supported in part by FXX, presenting Man Seeking Woman, a new surreal dating comedy from former SNL writer Simon Rich and executive producer Lorne Michaels, starring Jay Baruchel of This Is The End, and Eric Andre, who's been on Risk uh, several times. You might also know Eric from The Internship. Anyway, Man Seeking Woman premieres on January 14th at 10.30 p.m. on FXX. It's the most original and visual comedy you've seen in years. A lot of super wonderfully creative people involved in it. That is January 14th, 10.30 p.m. on FXX, Man Seeking Woman. Don't miss it. Also... One great resolution you can make for the new year is to maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business. And I have a small business with Risk and the Story Studio, so I know an easy way to do that with Stamps.com. Think about how much time you've wasted going to the post office, driving there, finding parking. Stamps.com is a better way to get postage. Just use what you already have, your computer and your printer. To get official U.S. postage for any letter or package, everything you do at the post office you can do right from your desk and at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. We've been using Stamps.com for years now, and we love it. Right now, use our promo code RISK to get this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. First of all, I'm so exhausted because I had to get up so early this morning to come here, but I realized I, I'm always a little bit nervous to come to Seattle because it's got this place in my head where I'm like, they're cool. They're cool there. Are they going to like me? I'm not cool. But you guys like me, right? <laughs> People here uh, are familiar with the Risk Podcast. I like the obedient ones that raise their hands. For anyone who does not know the podcast, let me let you know what it's about. Let me give you fair warning. Risk is the show where people tell true stories 
They never thought they'd dare to share in public, which means nothing is inappropriate until something definitely is. <laughs> Kinds of stories you can't hear on NPR and places like that. So the show is going to be an emotional roller coaster ride. Our theme tonight is fucked up. <laughs> It's kind of the last hurrah for us because a couple years ago, I decided that when Christmas time comes, when the holidays are here, those couple of weeks around that time, we're doing our risk shows, we're putting out the episodes and everything, and I, I finally decided those episodes should be where we take a little bit of a break, where we make things kind of nice and sweet, right? Uh, because I remember just a couple years ago, he was like, oh, I've got the perfect Christmas story for Risk. Uh, my uncle once blew the heads off three guys in a crack den on Christmas Eve. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but we're not there yet. That's a couple weeks away. So this is the last hurrah of the year for us. Tonight is fucked up. <laughs> And we've got Dan Savage sharing a story with us tonight. And we have three wonderful storytellers from right here in town, people who are fans of the show and pitched to us, and we've been working on these stories. It's really kind of a special thing. There really is a risk that some people don't know about in the show, and that is that some of these folks have never told a story live on stage in front of an audience before. They're gonna come up and bear their souls, so be supportive, show them the love. It's gonna be a, a, a night of hilarious and shocking and scary and sad and all over the map. I'm gonna start us off. This story of mine starts when I was um, 30 years old, and when I was 30, it was just not good. It was not good. I was, that Williamsburg Bridge, I was living very nearby and it was looking very tempting because my group, my sketch comedy group had, you know, lost our jobs on TV and I had been starving and I had been doing the survival job treadmill, you know, doing one horrible job after another and getting fired and fired and fired. And finally, I got to this point where I called a friend of mine, my friend Claire, and I was like, I can't do cater waitering anymore because it's so demoralizing. When I started cater waitering, uh, like a cup, like maybe a year after the state broke up, I thought, all right, this is really easy. An imbecile could do this. <laughs> and I started doing it, and my friend Joe Latrulio, who's on uh, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine now, he was also a member of the state. I was like, Joe, this is an easy way for people who have no talent or skills to like make some money. And he did it for two days, and then he was like, Kevin, no one with any self-respect would continue doing this job. <laughs> So he quit and I did it for about four more years. <laughs> and then finally I felt the way he did. And I was like, I, I have to get something else. So I, I talked to my friend Claire and she was like, oh my God, Kevin, there's an opening at this business that I work at. Now this is a real nine to five sort of job. You'd have to dress nice and act like you're a human being and all. But uh, I think maybe you could do it. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is it? She said, you'd be recruiting people to mentor children. And I said, Claire, I mean, I've never, I've never mentored a child. She was like, Kevin, 
that's why there's lying. <laughs> so I was like, oh, of course, of course. I just go in and I put on my charm and that'll do the trick. So I go in and I have this interview and I see right away, oh no. <laughs> this is a dangerous situation because the guy that was interviewing me was clearly the kind of gay man that I am not. Uh, Well-dressed, nice hygiene, looked like, you know, he had his finances in order. <laughs> All those sorts of things that just frighten me. Uh, I sit down with him and I'm like, oh God, this guy is immediately thinking, I'm not gonna hire another loser right now, am I? And I'm thinking, I hope you do. <laughs> But I really pour on the charm, and he finally says, well, you know what, Kevin? I mean, you really don't have any of the required experience, but you just seem like such a nice guy. I, I think I really want to give you a shot at this. And then he starts looking through his desk, and I'm like, oh my God, I got this thing. And he says, now there's just that you would have to take the drug test this afternoon. And I said, oh yeah. But if he hadn't been looking through his desk and had seen the expression on my face, there would have been no need for a drug test. <laughs> it was already revealed what was going to happen. So he whisks me out into the sunshine. It was a beautiful July day, just like it had been a couple days before when myself and all my gay pals had been on Fire Island celebrating the week of the 4th of July. In other words, I was, at that moment, walking into the sunshine, more or less, an ambulatory pharmacy. <laughs> there was still enough in me to probably take out a cocker spaniel. We had an arsenal of drugs in our little share that week before, and I had done a lot of experimenting, and uh, now I was just freaking out. I thought, oh my gosh, okay, I, I, drug test, drug test, drug test. How am I going to do this? Uh, I pulled out my little pad of paper in my pants, and I said, what I got to do is brainstorm on friends I know whose pee I could borrow, because, you know, I've got to have friends who don't do drugs ever. So I start getting ready to write down some names. And then I put the pad away because I realized, no, I do not have friends <laughs> who don't do drugs. I, you know, at that point in my life especially, if, if I knew people who didn't do drugs, I was staying away from them. Uh, so I thought, oh my gosh, wait, 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 wait. There's Frankie. Frankie was this little guy, this little Italian guy that I had a huge crush on who worked in the catering company that I had just, you know, been fired from. And I thought, oh, oh my gosh, okay, Frankie is so straight-laced. Surely he doesn't do any drugs. I'll ask if I can borrow some of this pee. Now, it was a little odd because Frankie and I didn't really know each other that well, but he did know I had a crush on him. So, you know, it was odd on top of odd, but I was like, look, I've got only hours to go. I've got to get this done today. So I went home, I picked up the phone, and I said, hey, Frankie, it's Kevin from catering. And he was like, uh-huh, to what do I owe the pleasure? I was like, oh, well, it's kind of a long story, but um, I was wondering if I could borrow a little bit of your pee. <laughs> but it's for a totally good cause, because I'd be helping children. <laughs> so I explained and explained and explained, and he's like, all right, 
I am home right now. Come over and you can get some of my pee. So I go on over and I'm kind of like blushing a little bit and I hand him a, a Ziploc baggie and I'm like, just go in this. He's like, a baggie? A sandwich baggie? I'm like, well, look, 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 I've been thinking about this. And the thing of it is, they say that this stuff, your urine, when they test it, it should be the temperature of a human being, right? So it can't be cold. So I thought, if you go in that baggie, then I can just tuck it in my underwear underneath my balls. And while I'm walking up to the testing facility in the hot July sun, it'll stay kind of like incubated and it'll be perfect. He's like, that's your plan. I said, yeah. He said, you, Kevin, you are like the Ralph Cramden of the Lower East Side. And I was so touched, because everyone loves Ralph Cramden. So, okay, he goes and he pees. Now, this was before I thought of myself as a kinky person, right? I was really your just garden variety gay guy, just doing everything pretty much by the book. So. It had never really even occurred to me stuff you might do with pee. But here's this guy that I have this huge crush on, right? And he comes out of the bathroom and our, our hands start to touch as he's handing me this bag of like golden yellow urine. And I can feel the warmth and the weight of it as our hands are touching. And there's this like frisson of like, oh. <laughs> And he looks at me and he's like, please tell me you are using this for a drug test. I was like, of course, Frankie, of course, of course. And I left, I put it under my balls while I was in the elevator going down and I went off to the drug testing facility. Now I got in there and I noticed, oh my God, it was so uncomfortable. I could not move an inch without going quash, quash, quash. I was a little, like, little aquarium in me. And there's just one seat. There's just one seat in the waiting room, and there's a, a nurse behind a desk. And she looks at me, and she says, oh, it's going to be like 10 minutes before we can take another person, so just take a seat. And I was horrified, because I was like, no. I'm wearing shorts. This is so precarious. If I do something as dramatic, and risky as sitting down, surely it's gonna explode all over my legs. So I just got all like, oh, uh, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, and I said, oh, oh my God, I forgot, I have another appointment. And I ran out of there, I got cold feet. And I went across the street to the J.P. Morgan Library. And I went to their, their bathroom, and I just threw the baggie in a toilet there, and I looked at it for a while, and it was just the most surreal and beautiful kind of sight. Because it was pee in a toilet, but protected by this little pillow. I was like, oh my gosh, that's like a surrealist work of art. And so now I was like, so now they've got that and the Gutenberg Bible. So I left, and I went back home, and I thought, oh my God, I've got to call Frankie again. I've got to get this done today. And I had another idea. So I called him, and I was like, Frankie, it's kind of a long story, but I need a little bit more of your pee. He was like, what are you doing with my bodily fluids? I'm like, no, 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 it's just obviously that whole baggy thing, that was a terrible idea. That's like a Ralph Cramden kind of idea. Now I'm going to give you a test tube, right? And bring that over. And so I do, I bring it over, I give him the test tube, and he says to me, 
Don't tell me you were thinking of keeping this warm by putting it up your butt. <laughs> and you know what? I was so happy he said that because in fact, I had been thinking, maybe I could keep this warm by putting it up my butt. <laughs> but now I had a little focus group from Frankie that that would not be a good idea. So I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that would not be a good idea. So I just put it in my pocket and off I went again, back to the drug testing facility. This time the nurse says, have a seat. And I'm like, will do. <laughs> I sat down and then she has me go in the bathroom. I pour it in the thing, give it to her. And she comes back in about a minute with a really flat expression on her face. And she says, sir, this urine is not the temperature of a human being. And I was like, what? Oh my God. Oh, you know, this cold I've been having this week, it must be. She's like, no, 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 no. Maybe you ought to go in there right now and try again. So I was stuck. I had nothing else I could do. I went in the bathroom, I peed in the cup, I gave it to her and I went home. And now I got so nervous because I had placed so much hope on getting this job. I had no money, I was desperate for the rent. And I just started spending the next couple of days. She had said, oh, it'll be about three or four days before this is done. So on the first day, I'm like, hmm, what should I do? On the second day, I'm like, oh, God, what should I do? And then at the beginning of the third day, I thought, you know what I should do? I should come clean. I should use the thing that I'm good at, which is honesty to try to appeal to people's better angels. So why don't I write out a little script and call this guy Scott at the place and, and confess to him what I had really done and see how that goes. So I write out my little script. And the thing of it is, those things never work out that way, right? You write out your little script and then the person is like, hello, and you're like, fuck, I didn't know he'd say that. <laughs> So I had it all planned, but it, in, in fact, it went out, out the window. I was like, Scott, I'm just, I feel like I should say something to you about that whole drug test thing. He's like, uh-huh. I said, well, there just might be a, a little something that shows up on there. He's like, what is that? And I thought, well, you know, he's another gay guy, so he, he should know what Fire Island is all about, right? So I said, well, me and my friends were all on Fire Island last weekend, and, you know, I might have done a little bit of experimentation with a thing or two. <sighs> I, I just wasn't able to do it with finesse. He was like, like what? I said, like marijuana. And? <laughs> and he's asking me what the and is because I'm so not good at lying consciously. I'm great at lying to myself unconsciously. <laughs> But that ends up making for good stories later on, right? So in a way, it kind of serves me. But at this moment, I'm like, oh, I just broke down. I couldn't lie. It was like a Pinocchio moment where I was just like, and, uh, oh, I don't know, the, uh, the uh, LSD, I guess. And I mean, maybe there was some, well, yeah, there was the meth, of course. And <laughs> ecstasy, sure. Uh, oh, there's that stuff that's like, you know, used to tranquilize cats, but... <laughs> Actually, I had a rather spiritual time on that one. And he's like, okay. 
is that I find this really disturbing and really surprising, Kevin. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. I find it surprising because I'm looking at your drug test results right now. Nothing showed up. I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> that was the moment when I could be like, oh, just kidding. <laughs> but no, he said, listen, Kevin, like I said, what you just said, I find it really disturbing. And I hope you cut that crap out. I was like, Scott, never again. <laughs> he said, listen, you strike me as such a nice guy. I still want to give you a chance at this, but I'm going to be watching you. So come in on Monday, but promise me you'll cut that shit out. And let's see how this works out. I was like, oh my God, thanks so much, Scott. And I hung up the phone and I thought to myself, wow, he's as nice a guy as I am after all. And you know what? That probably means this is another one of those jobs that I could get away with doing completely stoned. <laughs> Thank you very much. guys i want to bring our first local storyteller up here he has a podcast called here be monsters you can find it at hbmpodcast.com please welcome to the stage jeff entman So a lot of the people I grew up with had real reasons to rebel against their parents. Plenty of, plenty of good reasons. And I had none of those because anyone who meets my parents will first and foremost tell you that they're incredibly kind, polite, and rational. <laughs> my, my mother was a teacher. She's retired now. My dad was a doctor. He's retired now too. Um, the second part, my, my dad being a doctor will also become very important in the second half of this story. I got those first two traits pretty well from my parents. I was polite, and I'm, I'm kind. And the third one is the one that I chose to rebel against, albeit about 10 years too late, AKA last summer. Um, and kind of when I tell my parents this now, they, they roll their eyes at me, and, and under their breath, they call me an idiot. Um, I was sitting, it was a hot day, middle of last summer, and I was sitting in a psychic's living room, and my arms outstretched to her on the table like this, and there were a bunch of fans blowing at us really hard on the, on the highest setting. And I was surrounded by doilies and cat figurines, and there's a TV on mute in the background. I think it was The View that was on, but I don't watch The View, so I'm not quite sure what it was. And my psychic, her name was Brenda, and I was looking at her, and she was looking at me right in the eyes, and I was saying to myself, I don't believe in this shit. <laughs> but at the same time, it's really nice and reassuring just to have someone listen to you sometimes. Brenda was in her mid-50s. She had long brown hair, and she was wearing a shapeless sundress. And um, she had this kind of look on her face that was this like, very feigned, caring expression. It's really forced. And she said, what brings you here? 
I said, well, I'm about to do something really, really stupid, and I need to know if I'm going to die today. <laughs> and she started going into this like really scripted thing where she was talking about like my good energy, how I had good energy as a person, and how my chakras were lined up, and how the stars were in alignment, and how my body was in alignment. And at this point, I started to just kind of drift off into my own world. And I found it comforting. I think anyone would. When I was 19, I came to my dad, I was really panicked. Um, I, I found this lump in my arm, and um, I was sure that I had cancer and that I was going to die. My dad immediately called me down by telling me that, no, this thing is called a lipoma. It's actually really normal. Does anyone else here have lipomas? Yeah, a couple, a couple people know what I'm talking about. What he says is it's a tumor, but it's not cancerous. It's, it's totally benign, and most people that have them have a couple of them in their body, and they just kind of grow over the course of your life. But, you know, you find a lump in your body, and you think you're going to die. Um, my dad told me this was totally harmless, of course, and I didn't believe him. So I went to a dermatologist and got a second opinion, said the exact same thing, and said, hey, I could uh, cut that out of you. I'll charge you $1,000. And I said, fuck that. Over the course of six years, um, the lipoma grew and grew and grew. I, I started uh, referencing him as Granddaddy because he was the first and the biggest. And Granddaddy was just kind of my little pal that, that uh, tagged along with me to events. And um, in, in situations where I'd see people I know who were married uh, fidgeting with their wedding ring, I would kind of tweedle it around in my arm and turn it around. And it wasn't painful or anything. It was just kind of, it was just kind of there. Um, it was about the size of a Tootsie Roll, maybe a little bit smaller, and about the same consistency. Um, <laughs> and there was just this growing annoyance with it as I, as I got older and older, because it was getting bigger and bigger, and it was starting to frustrate me. By the time I was 25, this was a sort of everyday sort of thing, and my arms started looking weird. I noticed that, especially when I was biking, I would see it right there, and it would be popping out. And I started using um, like x-ray vision in my eyes to like open up the skin there and look underneath, and I could see it. It was, it was kind of yellow and fatty and blobby. And, um, and I could actually feel it in this very moment at the psychic's house, pushing against the glass countertop of her living room table, and it was starting to bother me, and I was feeling this sense of dread. And she said to me, she said, why do you think you're going to die today? <laughs> I decided to tell her the truth. The truth was that the night before I had been at work biking around the U District, I saw my friend in a restaurant. There's this halal burger joint on the Ave. If any of you guys know this place, it's called Burger King. Oh, wait, no, it's not called Burger King. What is it called? Does anyone know this? I've totally forgotten what it's called. Um, burger Hut, yes. Thank you. And she was leaving there, and I, I ran into her, and I told her, I told her um, about the blob in my arm, and she immediately said to me, she said, you know, I, could, I cut a lot of dead fish open. I could probably cut that out of you. <laughs> um, this was a friend of mine I really liked. Uh, she's a coworker. Um, she moved away. But um, she had a shaved head. She was, like, really tough. She wore a lot of black and uh, had muscular arms and never wore sleeves on her shirt. I would be tempted to call her punk rock if I felt like I knew what punk rock was, but I don't because I'm, I'm just a, too much of a square. And um, she offered to take it out of me, and I said, absolutely, I would love that, not really thinking about what I was saying. At this point in the story, Brenda's look of feigned interest totally drops off her face, and I feel her lean in to get a little bit closer and get a better look at me. And, <laughs> um, and suddenly, with like the most serious expression in her face, she said, today, 
Today is not the day you will die. You will live to be an old man. You will live to be 99 years old. I still don't believe this shit, but I'll be honest with you, it felt really nice and comforting to have her say that. So I paid her and I left and I hopped on my bike and I biked back up north and um, dropped by a couple stores and picked up some gauze and I picked up a scalpel. Um, I picked up some comically oversized bandages and a uh, little vial of liquid iodine. I went back to my house and I shaved all the hair off my arm and I went over to my coworker Carrie's house and she opened the door and I could see through the house, I could see in the back porch, I could see this little surgical theater that she'd laid out. And there was a towel on the table, a white towel. And we had started boiling water to sterilize the instruments. We put it in there and Carrie walks up to me and she says, you know, I have something to tell you. I said, what's that? And she said, last night when I told you I could do this, I was actually really drunk. <laughs> and I'm not so sure that I can do it now, but we'll do it anyway, but I just want to let you know, like, I've never operated on anything that's alive before, or not a fish. She was a fish biologist. <laughs> um, and, um, and I said, how worried should I be right now? And she said, well, how much whiskey have you had? <laughs> I said, not very much. And she said, why don't you try a little bit more? And I was suddenly okay with everything. Um, so as we were getting ready, she was putting on a pair of gloves. The instruments had finished sterilizing, so that was good. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I, I had this pen with me and I drew a circle around granddaddy <laughs> on my arm and I showed her, I was like, this is where, and we were using technical terms, this is where the incision needs to happen. <laughs> and we unwrapped the scalpel and she had gotten in a bike accident recently, so she had some topical anesthetic and we smeared that on and it felt nice, numbed it up real good. And then she grabs the scalpel and um, starts humming to herself and I look away and she's humming, the first cut is the deepest. <laughs> At this point, needless to say, time kind of turned into this jelly amorphous blob that, that, that was as, as almost as blob-like as the blob in my arm. And the next hour and a half kind of washed by me in a strange, strange, surreal way. I closed my eyes and I felt this sharp, dull pain that was simultaneously moving through my body. And I felt the layers of my skin start to separate away from each other. And I felt that layer between where the topical anesthetic had seeped through my skin to the layer where it hasn't. And it was the most surreal experience I've had in recent years. There's a slow bleeding sensation and she would wipe away with the gauze and then it would bleed a little bit more and she'd wipe away. It was very slow. It was very slow and controlled. And 30 minutes went by. And I started remembering that I had heard this thing once that someone had said. They said, pain is no better or no worse than any other physical sensation. It's just another sensation, but it's, it's more intense. And if you can get past that, pain is nothing. It's just a physical sensation. And that really helped me along as she was there just slicing slowly and deliberately away. And I opened my eyes and I looked down and I could see the cut. And then she wiped away the blood. And I looked down and I saw granddaddy.
looked just like I thought he would when I had been x-ray visioning my arm. She started squeezing here, pushing, pushing, and nothing happened. I closed my eyes again. Another 30 minutes went by, and this time she was now cutting laterally, parallel to the skin, with the scalpel, just slicing away the connective tissue, just like this. And I started feeling like I was in an alternate state. It reminded me of what people talk about when they use hallucinogens, where you start to notice every single thing, and you stop worrying so much about today and tomorrow, and just start thinking about the now. And so I started noticing just everything, the autobiographical self just melts away. And I feel this oozing, and it feels cold. It feels dull and it feels sharp at the same time, and most of all it just feels personal in a way that I don't know how to describe despite my best efforts. I started noticing the birds in the distance and the, the road in the distance over here, and then I also started noticing the feeling of Carrie's breath on my arm, and it was faster than I wanted it to be. And it was apparent that she was incredibly nervous because this was taking much longer than we thought. We thought this was going to be a really quick sort of thing, and it wasn't. After all, I was her first living subject, and I was really trying to keep it that way. <laughs> I closed my eyes again. After another 30 minutes, the topical anesthetic had completely worn off. So had the bullshit lie I told myself about pain being just another physical sensation, because it isn't. It sucks. Pain sucks. Because this was taking longer than we expected, and we were starting to run out of gauze at this point, and I was not going to the hospital. And the more I thought about it, it wasn't because of the money, it wasn't because of the dermatologist wanting to charge $1,000 to take out granddaddy. Instead, I was starting to slowly realize my true motives here. And what I was really trying to do is I was really trying to give a big fuck you to the medical establishment I'd grown up with and my father's rationality and his calmness and his kindness. It felt really good for a second. And I was starting to be okay with everything again. And I feel this kind of warm, outpouring sensation, and under her breath, just barely audible, Carrie says, Shit. <laughs> I open my eyes and look down, and Granddaddy's still in there. And I say, What happened? And she said, Well, I think I nicked a vein. And so she starts squeezing hard on my arm, and all of a sudden, she'd cut away everything that connected it in there and just popped out, just sitting on my skin. There's still just a tiny bit of connective tissue there. And she takes a scalpel and she just slices it off really quick and uses one of our last gauze pads and puts a lot of pressure on there to stop the bleeding. And I have this little jar of alcohol with me, isopropyl alcohol, and it's a little mason jar. I <laughs> just plop it in there and screw on the lid really tight like it's something I want to get rid of, you know? I look at Granddaddy, and like I said, about the size of a Tootsie Roll or a gummy bear, just sitting there, floating in the alcohol. And I look, and on one end of it, there's the tiniest little bit of a vein attached. And this little bastard had gotten into my bloodstream and latched onto my body, and that explains why I bled so much at the very end of it. I looked into Carrie's eyes for the first time in several hours, 
and I could tell that she was more than just a bit freaked out. That feeling that you get, that shaking feeling you get when you're coming down off of adrenaline. And I said, how bad of an idea was that? And she said, that was a terrible idea. I'm never doing that again to anyone else, and anyone would be right to call us idiots. On that note, <laughs> I went home to visit my parents uh, soon after that, and as I was walking through the house, the first thing my dad said was, he said, whoa. He saw my arm, he saw the scar there. He said, whoa, what is that? I knew I was in for it, because my dad's a doctor, remember, that's important. And I knew I was just about to get chewed out for doing a back alley surgery in someone's you know, side yard with a white towel <laughs> covered in blood. She had to throw that away. And I show the scar to my dad and tell him the story. And he says, well, you know, actually, for a fish biologist, she did a really good job. <laughs> but that is one nasty scar you've got on your arm there. So nowadays, um, I still have that jar, and I still have Granddaddy, and I, I keep him next to my bed. And he still floats there in the jar, and I'll show him to anyone who's interested. You know, I said that I usually keep him by my bed, but... There it is. If any of you guys want to see this after the show, I'm around. Needless to say, I didn't get gangrene, I didn't even get infected, which I'm incredibly thankful for. But in the meantime, until I find another participant for my studies, um, I'm done with the teenage angst, late onset teenage angst, and I'm also done with scalpels. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, so I think we all learned something. You should probably be a little bit skeptical about your psychic if she talks like a dead person in a Japanese horror movie. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've told stories about the, the kink camp that I regularly go to and now teach at. I, I went two years ago to this camp and there's all kinds of workshops on uh, different sorts of kinky activities. And, and one of the workshops I went to one day was called Cutting. And I figured that's probably something I'll never actually want to do, uh, but let's go. And I was bringing uh, my friend, uh, I have a, a Korean friend named Du, and he is, he can't speak a word of English or really understand a word of English. He's a sculptor and a really amazing artist. But most of that week at King Camp, he spent just, you know, nodding his head like, uh-huh, yeah, sure, I understand, having no idea what the fuck was going on around him. We went to this cutting class, and in these classes, there's always demo tops and demo bottoms. Uh, people who are going to allow stuff to be done to them, and people who are going to show how things are done. So the teacher came out, and she handed out a bunch of scalpels, and she was like, all right, now for this class, uh, we're going to have the class be the demo tops and demo bottoms. So the person to your left is the demo bottom, and the person on the right is the top, and then she's like, no, no, I'm just kidding. We're, we're gonna cut oranges. Uh, 
We were all a bit, a bit freaked out there for a moment. So she hands out these oranges and she starts teaching us how the texture of the orange is like cutting skin and how you should cut skin when you want to cut someone. And everyone was really struggling with it. She was like, all right, cut a straight line. And we're all like, oh gosh, this is kind of difficult to get it straight. And then she's like, all right, now cut a triangle. And I'm like, oh my God, this is torture. I can't, uh, I'm just botching this orange, right? And then she wanted a square and then a circle. A circle, I thought, oh my gosh, I, you know, forget it. I'm done with this class already. And everyone had a tough time with it. And then do my friend, the sculptor, who really didn't understand what we were doing there in the first place, <laughs> holds his up and it's Picasso's woman at a mirror. <laughs> We were all like, what the fuck? He was just there for sculpture class and he got an A. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'd like to bring up our next storyteller. Uh, we met a couple of years ago. She shared a gorgeous, gorgeous story for me that we recorded together. And so it was a real uh, honor to be able to work with her again. Uh, she's just a lovely, lovely storyteller. You can find her at leahcrop.com. Please welcome to the stage, Leah Crop. So just recently, back in October, I celebrated my first year of marriage. To, thank you. Yeah. His name is Andrew, and he is the best person I've ever known. He's fantastic. We met at work. We work at a very large industrial warehouse in the area. <laughs> um, our wedding day was absolutely fantastic. It was one of the best days of my life. It was filled with dance and love, friends, family, music. Uh, it was wonderful. We've been together for four years, and we actually have two children, an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old. I think you will notice that the math doesn't quite add up there, but <laughs> I say it that way because he truly is a wonderful father to my children. Even though they might not be biological, he really loves them from day one, and they love him in return, and I'm so lucky to have that. So our wedding was on a Saturday, and we did not plan a honeymoon, kind of running low on funds after planning a big party like that, and running out of vacation time. So we were just business as usual when it came to Monday. Back to work I go. And I'm at work, and I like, kind of just happened to think to myself, shouldn't I have had my period? <laughs> I think I should have, yeah. And so throughout the rest of the day, I go, I'm just I'm so nervous. I got this feeling in my stomach, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. What if I'm pregnant? Oh, my gosh, you know. Get off work, head home, stop at the store, pick up a pregnancy test, head home again, go upstairs, take the test. I'm pregnant. <laughs> like blown away, completely blown away. I should have seen this coming. I didn't, okay? Um, 
two days after I got married, I found out I was pregnant. I mean, just the last thing I would have thought it would happen. I had so many other plans. <laughs> so I try to pull myself together, uh, go downstairs, act as normal as I can, because I cannot process this information at this moment. I was freaking out that Andrew might get upset. Uh, we had all these plans to take care of, you know, buy a car, whatever. So boring, but... <laughs> I get through dinner, get the kids in bed, go upstairs, and I, I mean, my heart's just racing. And I, I go, uh, we need to talk. Worst thing to say ever to anybody. It's <laughs> the worst thing to say. And uh, he goes, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, what about? And uh, I can't talk. I can't say anything, which is very odd because anybody who knows me, I can't shut up. So it's like the first time I no words can come out and I'm just staring at him and, and the tears are welling up in my eyes, you know, and he just kind of stares at me and goes, you're pregnant, huh? And I was like, oh, you know, I just start crying and crying and he, he hugs me and I've never asked him how he knew, but I guess he just yeah, it's the only thing that would shut me up, I guess. But um, <laughs> he hugs me. It makes me feel better. And immediately, you know, I just see the joy in his face. And he's so excited. And, you know, plans. Who cares? You know, this is fantastic. And we just start daydreaming. And, you know, it's just we hit the road running right there, thinking about a little baby and all the fun things that come with that. And, um, you know, I go back to work. And immediately everything changes because I work around a lot of chemicals and I can't work there anymore. So I get removed from that situation, go to another building, new people, new everything. Everybody knows why I left, you know. And uh, this really awesome thing happened. My best friend that I work with two weeks later called me up and said, I'm pregnant. <laughs> so she got to come with me. It was fantastic. We, we were, you know, set. It was so, what a special time to spend with one of your best friends doing the same thing, being pregnant. It was great. So as the weeks progressed, uh, you know, you go to your appointments as you do. And I hit my eight-week appointment, see my midwife, get her checked out. You see your little, little bean on the screen, you know, and it's fantastic. It's so exciting. You see a little flutter of a heartbeat. And uh, I just remember telling Andrew, I'm so happy you get to see me pregnant and do this because as cheesy as it sounds, this is what I was born to do. Like, I rock at this. I'm so good at it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm one of the most annoying pregnant ladies you probably know because, I mean, they were a breeze. It was fun. Birth was great. It kind of it hurt a lot, but, you know, I made it through just the way I wanted. No drugs. They were fast. It was fantastic. So I was just really excited to share this side of me with him. And uh, we get to our 13-week appointment, and I'm really excited about this one because now we should be able to hear it, hear the heartbeat. It's big enough now. Finally, we can hear it, not just see it, you know? And I really want to see Andrew's face. I don't know if it's special for everybody, but it's really special for me to the, at that moment, you know, this is real. And my midwife puts the little Doppler wand on my belly, which puts the goo on first and then puts it on my belly. And uh, we listen. We don't hear anything. 
So she moves it. I mean, it's little, right? <laughs> it's hard to find. Moves it around and nothing. She moves it again. And there's nothing. So she says, let's go check it out on the ultrasound. We'll go find that little guy. So I go lay down. She puts a little wand on my belly. And there's nothing. Nothing. There was a little bean just a few weeks ago, and now there's nothing. I'm so confused, you know? I'm just not computing. I don't understand. Uh, she says, you know, um, it's really hard for me to tell on this machine because it's bad. It's old, old machine. I'm going to set up an appointment for you to go to a specialist. They got great machines. They could tell us what's going on. So she does. And uh, she gives me a piece of paper to take to him, and it says, is this a viable pregnancy? That night, I'm a mess. I cry. All, I mean, I just don't know what to do. I'm so upset. Andrew was there for me completely, 100%, and let me just be and cry. The next day was the appointment. I go to the appointment, and, um, you know, I did a lot of research on the internet the night before to ease my mind, and that didn't really work so good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really nervous, and I, I'm at the office, and, you know, we get all gelled up again and put the wand on there, and there's nothing. So the, the text says, you know, let's do a different kind of ultrasound. There's a transvaginal one, right? They have a different one, go up and in, check it from the bottom, <laughs> right? <laughs> check it by the cervix, okay? She does that and uh, look at the screen and I see it. I see its little foot. And I see his body and head. And we're not breathing. I think I'm breathing. She turns on the heart rate monitor, and we're all just so quiet because I just want to hear that heartbeat. And I don't because there is none. So she tells me to get dressed, and I do. And I ask her, what does this mean? You know, I know what it means. Tell me what it means. She says, I can't. You know, I'm sorry, I'm not qualified. Uh, the doctor's got to check the scan and get with your midwife, and she'll get with you. So I go home. A couple hours go by, and my midwife gives me a call. Tells me that we did lose the baby. And, you know, here's the next steps. Here's a doctor you can go see. And honestly, that was so traumatic that that's going to have to be saved for another night. I should mention that this happened exactly a year ago, two days ago. After the holidays, I uh, went back to work. But I didn't go back to where all the pregnant ladies are because I wasn't pregnant anymore. I went back to regular work. 
And everybody's, hey, Leah, oh my God, how you doing? How's that little baby? And I have to tell them, well, I lost the baby. And they freak out, you know, like their faces are, oh my God, what did I do? What did I say? Oh my God. So I find myself comforting them. It's okay, it's all right, you know, it happens, you know. Don't worry about it, it's okay. And try to change the subject, you know. One thing, I definitely never thought of having a miscarriage, never crossed my mind. But it's funny, the things that happen after a miscarriage that you never thought of happening. One being not talking about it anymore because it makes people uncomfortable. Another is all those awesome emails you signed up for when you were pregnant and you still keep getting them afterwards saying, hey, you're seven months along, all right. You know, the baby's the size of an orange or whatever. Um, I got tons of samples in the mail. I got a diaper, I got some formula. I got, oh, I'm set up, man. I just took all those things and put them in the closet with all those awesome onesies and everything that I bought for my baby. The funny thing is, is, you know, I looked all over those websites to try to find that button that says, stop sending me this shit, my baby died. But that doesn't exist. Honestly, I can't find it. It doesn't, not there. They keep sending it to you. I try to take everything in stride, and I believe everything happens for a reason. I have no fucking idea why this happened. I still don't. But I try to turn it into something good. And I took my passion for pregnancy and labor and how much I enjoyed all of it, and I turned it into a seedling of a career uh, on the side of my regular job. I'm, I became a doula. So that was fantastic. I've, I've already attended a few births. I get to help ladies have the birth that they want to have. And something that was really fantastic that came out of it is my best friend hired me as her doula. So I got to help her deliver her beautiful baby boy. born just about a week after I was due. So it's a beautiful full circle moment for me. And I'm very thankful for that. One out of four women lose a baby in miscarriage, late pregnancy, or early infancy. I am one out of four. A piece of advice that I would give you may not always know what to say, especially when something like this happens. And that's okay. You don't have to say anything. Maybe we just need to be heard.
Uh, really beautiful to uh, to make something creative out of something like that. I um, I love it. I love it. That's why we're here. Uh, our next story is yet another one that is fucked up in a completely different way. The next person up to the stage is a big fan of the show, has been listening to us, I think he said, from the very beginning. So it's very exciting. He's, I don't think he's ever shared a story on stage before, though. So, uh, <laughs> but this is one hell of a tale. Please welcome to the stage, Kevin Bartlett! In 2003, in Jalisco, south of Guadalajara, a fight got started over a horse. It was actually a fight over the debt that was owed of a horse. Three Mexican cartel members made their way to the uh, Morero family, where a man named Pedro, father of three, husband, greeted them at the door, and they told him that he owed him money. He tried to explain that he already paid for the horse, but the scene quickly got ugly. A nine-year-old Pedro and his six-year-old daughter Maria looked over their mother's shoulder as the scene escalated from an argument to shouting to explosions. A bullet left one of the cartel members' guns, entered Pedro's eye, exploded out the back of his head, and he crumpled on. The explosion caused their mother to jump up and run over to come cradle her dying husband. The cartel members shot her in the back of the head and then fled the scene. The explosions caused a two-year-old girl that was sleeping in the other room that they didn't even know was there to start crying. And instinctively, six-year-old Maria ran to cradle her sister, while Raul watched as a pool of blood expanded and enveloped his parents and everything he knew at that point in life. The neighboring community, fearing that the cartel members were gonna come back and execute the only witnesses, the children, put them on a bus and sent them to Tijuana where years ago, someone that had grown up in the village had started becoming a smuggler up there and had been sending money back to the village, making him something of a hero at this point, or at least a hope. In 2003 in Bothell, I was mowing lawns at a local community college so I could pay for my environmental science classes and my cultural justice classes. Me and my friends were going around spray painting no more blood for oil on McDonald's windows, really sticking it to the man, you know? <laughs> or more likely, we were sticking it to the uh, hourly worker that had to scrub that shit off in the morning. <laughs> in that town of Bothell, there was a little family-owned Mexican restaurant that we had been going to since I was a kid, and it was owned and operated by the Guerrero family. By the way, I'm changing names in this story, just you'll see why. <laughs> it was owned and operated by um, Roberto and Leticia Guerrero, and we had been good family friends with them forever. They used to come over to my parents' house when there'd be like American holidays, and we would go to their quinceañeras and all that stuff. So when Raul told me the story of what was happening to his little nephew and nieces, and asked me if I'd be willing to help him drive down to Tijuana and bring them back, I said, absolutely. Roberto said, now, I asked your father about this before to make sure it was okay, and he said yes, but if anything happened to you, that he was gonna kick my ass. I really laughed thinking about this, because if you know my father, the thought of him bringing violence against anyone is hysterical. But for two, that means that my father said, yes, take my son across the border to a known drug smuggler's house, try to bring back some illegal kids, we're armed border guards facing at least a felony, maybe some time in jail, 
But if anything happens, I'm gonna give you a little tussling. <laughs> seemed odd to me. So I said, yes, absolutely, under one condition. I'm calling my buddy Keith, and we're bringing him. Roberto reluctantly said okay, but as long as Keith didn't know what we were doing, that was fine. So I called up Keith and told him what we were doing, and he said absolutely. But I couldn't just be like, hey, we're driving down to Tijuana in 24 hours, and then we're heading back. It's just a thing that people do. <laughs> so we set off. And 24 hours later, we arrived in Tijuana. For me and Keith, it was exciting, you know? There's all these new smells, sounds. There's culture everywhere. There's madness. There's people dressed in, like, ink and garbs, dancing in the streets and all of this. It was something of, like, a Kerouac adventure for us. Later that day, Roberto explained to me that for him, and for most people born from Mexico, Tijuana represents something of a death to them. It's a last-ditch effort to sell to the lowest bidder anything that can be sold. That's your life, your body, certainly your culture that we thought we had experienced. As we drove away from the city center and down the increasingly broken streets, it dawned on me that I was about to come face to face with these kids that in their short time on earth had seen more brutality and hardships than any college paper that I would write could ever help me to understand. As young punk rock kids from Washington, you know, we, we did our best to rebel against what we thought were injustices and which certainly were, you know, we, we marched at all the ramp up to the war. We flyered and spray painted, we caught tear gas at WTO, all of these things which felt very immediate and important and real, and they were, and you know, but suddenly here I was, and fuck, here we were pulling into a smuggler's house, and I thought, this is real. A 40-year-old gentleman, smiling, waved us in, who I assumed to be the uh, smuggler or dealer, whatever he was, I didn't ask too many questions about that. and. Next to him was a nine-year-old boy who looked like he hadn't slept in weeks, a six-year-old girl who looked terrified, and a two-year-old playing with a ball and laughing because she was too small to know any better. So we got out of the car, me and Keith looked at each other, and then we smiled to everyone. We didn't speak any Spanish, they didn't speak any English, and we all just kind of nervously smiled and nodded our heads, and then we looked into each other's eyes, and then we looked away. The plan, was simple. Roberto had a son also named Roberto who was nine years old. So we were gonna take Raul and Raul was now gonna be Roberto. And then we had come down to get him from Roberto's sister who had been taking care of him during the summer so that he could get in touch with his roots because that was important to Roberto. And then her two little daughters, the little girls, we were gonna bring them back up to America so they could spend time with their uncle and see what that was all about. Seemed easy enough, I suppose. Roberto coached Raul on what his new name was, what his birthday was, where they lived, tried to get this kid to really fit the character. And on the side, me and Keith kind of coached each other. Once again, I thought, fuck, this is pretty real. I said, remember, Keith, you don't know anything about the situation that's going on here. He kind of smiled and turned his head to the side and said, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Perfect. <laughs> With that, we took off. You know, when me and Keith were kind of looking at the situation, understand that for us, if we got caught, which was something we very much knew could happen, 
It was an adventure. It was also a cause for us to grab onto. Maybe we'd get caught. Maybe we'd make it through and like, be heroes. Maybe we'd get caught and spend some time and finally be able to prove and show that we were willing to put our money where our mouth was. But just 20 feet away were three kids who didn't have that option or the luxury of having that sort of a stance on their situation. For them, it was life or death, and they had just seen death. Eventually, we got to the borderline. It was hot. It was an August day. It was a Saturday. It was slow moving. For the first time, I started to get really excited and then really sick and then excited and sick, and this just went back and forth. And we tried to keep the mood light in the car, but Raul began to shake and shake more visibly, staring straight ahead the closer we got to the border. Roberto tried to lighten him up, tussling his hair, talking to him in Spanish, kind of poking his side, but it wasn't really getting through. We couldn't get him out of his head. The next thing we knew, we were next. My stomach muscles and my chest were tightening so much, it was pushing my ribs into my lungs, and it was making it hard to breathe, but all I could think of is what is happening to poor Raul up here, everything he's just seen, and now what we're about to go do, and then we're there. The squat fat officer comes over, looking already annoyed, and in a slight draw just says, roll down the windows. So we roll down the windows, and he sort of surveys the scene. He looks, and he sees this 40-year-old Mexican man with a nine-year-old Mexican boy in the front seat, and then in the back he sees two white kids and two little girls, and an odd expression came over his face as he tried to figure out what in the fuck was going on here. <laughs> he said, let me see your papers. So we gave him the papers, and he studied them hard, and he studied us, and he looked at the papers, and then his face actually relaxed, and it looked like it was gonna work out. He leaned in to hand them to us, and then kind of stopped, looked at us all one more time, and he said, what's everybody's name? Well, kind of all on top of each other, we said our names, except for Raul, of course. So he kind of honed in on him. He stuck his head in the car a little farther. What's your name? Raul just shook and stared straight ahead. So in Spanish, he said it one more time, what's your name? And Raul, in a shaking voice, said, Roberto Guerrero? The officer shot his head back and said, was that a fucking question? What's your name? Roberto Guerrero. At this point, he turned to Roberto and he said, what in the fuck's going on here? How come this kid doesn't speak any English? How come he doesn't know his name? Roberto said, well, I, uh, well, I sent him down uh, to stay with my sister. And he said, no, no, no. The child paper you just gave me said he was born in the United States. You don't forget English because he spent the summer with your sister. Why don't you go over there? And he pointed us to the detention line. As soon as we got there, they pulled the kids out. Raul turned back to look at us as he was being dragged into the interrogation room with just a remorseful, terrified face, and he was gone. And Roberto just kept repeating over and over to us and certainly to himself, it's nothing. We're fine, guys. It's nothing. 30 minutes later, they brought us in, and as they did, we saw the kids exiting the interrogation room with tear-stained faces. They didn't ask us a lot of questions after that. They slapped bracelets on us and said, Los Co-Smugglers, and they put us in an elevator with two armed guards wearing shotguns, which I thought, who shoots a shotgun inside? That seems like that would be a problem. They took Roberto one direction, they took me and Keith the other, 
And a young, completely shaved head officer sat me and Keith down in front of a picture of the framed constitution and said, I want you to look at this and I want you to realize why you shouldn't be allowed back in the United States. Our blood boiled and as we started to speak up and say something, three other officers ran over screaming in our face, grabbed us and pulled us to our hard plastic seats in a sea of hard plastic seats and sat us down. And as soon as he did, all eyes turned on us, the only two white kids, and the eyes were not exactly looking welcoming. After we were there for just a little while, staring at the ground, thinking one more time, fuck, this is real, some people started talking to Roberto, and then laughter erupt, noises I was not expecting to hear. And as it did, the officers jumped up behind their desk, slammed their fist on it, and said, shut the fuck up. Well, suddenly we looked up, and all those hard eyes that were glaring at us were now smiling. And the man next to me said, we asked your friend what he's doing here with these gringos. He said he got caught trying to smuggle you into Mexico. <laughs> said no but he told us what what happened good looking out and suddenly everyone wanted to tell us their story so I heard stories of people that were in desperate situations trying to find a better life for themselves or bring their brother across people that didn't really have an option I mean here we were we certainly had an option we were doing this for adventure and for a sense of justice everyone else that was in there was doing it because they had to seemed like that was their only way that they were going to make a better life for themselves or any sort of life. Now, they don't let you sleep. It's impossible to do it. So you sit in these hard plastic chairs and you kind of nod off and you do this and it, it doesn't work out. If you lean forward, they come wake you up. And Keith, love him, but he really likes to push it in the wrong situations. He turned to me after about 11 hours of sitting there straight with bloodshot, half-opened eyes, and he says, fuck this, I have to sleep. So he got on his hands and knees, and he crawled to the wall opposite the desks, laid out like he was in a fucking Holiday Inn. <laughs> Everyone around me is grabbing me and shaking me and pointing at him and going, mm, mm. <laughs> Half delirious, I think it's funny. <laughs> There's nothing I could do about this shit. So, sitting there for a while, and about 20 minutes later, a woman that looks like a bulldog standing straight up wearing leather boots walks over to him, sort of like this, stands over him, staring at him, and with a toe punt to the ribs, rips him and me out of the idea that we are there and have any sort of free will or control over what is happening to us right now. As Keith's eyes meet her steely gaze, she growls out through gritted teeth, morning sunshine. She grabs a hold of his shoulder, has him on his feet, and disappeared in the back room in seconds. I started panicking. I have no idea what's happening. Keith's gone. I, I, I can only imagine what sort of beating he's receiving back there. Everyone that's telling me stories about all of these people that the officers and all of this, they're not nice people. They're Stories of violence is all I was hearing from these guys, and now they have Keith, who has absolutely fucked up. They have a reason to kick his ass in their warped minds. I can't close my eyes, because every time I do, all I see is just some atrocious act being taken out on. About 45 minutes later, he comes back, looking at the ground. They've stripped him of everything except for his pants and his shirt. And as he sort of trudges back over to a seat right in front of me, they sit him down, and 
Everyone's silent, staring forward. The gravity of the situation is on us, and I don't know what's wrong with me, but when I'm in these sorts of situations, I have to find a way out by any means, so I lean forward, and in a soft whisper, I say to him, Morning, sunshine. Crowd <laughs> <laughs> erupts in laughter. We all feel human again. It's okay. Keith's back, and from what I can tell, he's okay. About a few hours later, they kick us out on one side of the border. They kick the kids out on the other. Me and Keith receive warnings. Uh, months after this happened, a law would pass. It would no longer allow that to happen. We would have gotten felonies. Roberto gets a felony. They keep his car. We fly back to Washington. And a week later, those same border guards that sat us in front of the Constitution and all high and mighty for a bribe, those kids were over here. One week later. Also, a week after that, against all odds, we find out that Pedro, their father, had actually lived through the accident. I guess it wasn't an accident. He had lived through the shooting. He had lost his eye and hearing in his right ear, but he actually made it through. And the last time we saw them was in that Mexican restaurant, and we walked in, and we all nervously smiled and nodded and looked into each other's eyes. But this time we didn't look away. Thank you. Kevin Bartledge. All righty, we have one final storyteller tonight. I just wanted to share a little thing. You might be aware that uh, the editor of the Risk podcast, Jeff Barr, if you've ever listened to the little sound collages that come between the stories, you might have figured out that Jeff likes marijuana. <laughs> so he often, he often, and he's from Colorado, where that sort of thing is in grand supply, so he often uh, gives me stuff, right? Uh, a couple months back, he sent me a package did he use the United States Postal System? I'm not quite sure. Might he have used stamps.com? I... But anyway, uh, Jeff and I are always getting angry at each other because we're both kind of, uh, you know, potheads, and we're always saying things and then forgetting what we've said to each other and then calling each other on it. Like, I told you that five sentences ago. No, you didn't. Yes, here it is. We've got the text. So anyway, at one point, we're, we're, we're texting back and forth, preparing an episode, and all these editing notes going back and forth, and he said, oh, by the way, I sent you another package, and this one includes a little something extra. It's some hash, but it's packaged with some other stuff in there, so be careful about that, uh, just to, you know, throw the scent off of dogs or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, 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 okay, uh, now uh, let's get on with editing the episode, yada, yada. Uh, so a couple weeks later, I get this package, and I've completely forgotten these instructions. I just remember the word hash, that there's hash somewhere in this thing. So I find a little container and I open it up and I'm like, I've never smoked hash. I've never really seen it or smelled it. And I see that this little container is filled with like a sandy substance that smells kind of like geraniums. And I'm like, this should be very interesting and start filling the pipe and smoking it. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened to me exactly. <laughs> but you know, there's the placebo effect. So I was like, that, that seemed pretty good. That seemed pretty good. And I was smoking that stuff for about six weeks. 
Until yesterday, I got to digging in there and found that there was a baggie underneath the sand. Pulled out the baggie and I see a brown clump of something in there and I'm like, fuck, that's the hash! I wrote to Jeff, I was like, what the fuck is this? And he's like, don't tell me you've been smoking that. He said it was body scrub. I was so upset at him and so upset at me and then upset at him again. And, and finally I was like, all right, there's only one way to calm myself down and make all this better. And that is to smoke some of this hash. So I got good and stoned out of my mind. And then five minutes later, Dan Savage calls me to review his story, which is all to say that Dan's story is going to be as much of a surprise to me tonight <laughs> as it probably will be for you. Dan Savage, everyone! I feel weird telling this story after um, the last couple of very moving stories that were very important and mine is just the theme was fucked up so I have a bullshit fucked up drug story to tell you I did acid in college I did everything most things in college I didn't smoke pot for the first time until I was 36 and I haven't stopped since um, but I, I you know I just sort of did a little bit of drugs in college and I, I, I took acid in college uh, with my friend Maureen and we were at the Cranert Center for the Performing Arts which just had this amazing huge lobby with these sort of striped Carrera marble walls and this parquet inlaid flooring that went on for an acre and this paneling and we did acid in the lobby and we just hung out there until the walls were kind of moving a little bit and the floors were going like this and sort of Escher-ish lizards were coming out of the parquet but just very subtle and you kind of had to look <laughs> and we would look at each other and go yeah, yeah, if I concentrate, I can see shit, right? And that for me was acid. I was like, well, that's didn't live up to the hype. And about 10 years later, I'm in Seattle, and somebody offers me acid. And I thought, oh, they were supposed to, you know, have something else for us, but they didn't. They offered me acid, and I was like, yeah, well, acid's kind of boring, but okay, whatever. I'll have some acid. So I had a hit of acid, and about... 45 minutes later, uh, you know, we're getting sort of the Escher effect and like things are moving just a little bit and I'm going like this and like, yes, I can feel it. And I think, okay, acid, this is what I remember. And they were like, is it good? And I was like, yeah, it's okay. It's sort of subtle. And they're like, would you want another hit? And I said, okay, sure. I can handle double this. Because it's nothing. This is a, this is nothing. And so, I had another hit of acid. And after I took the second hit of acid, the first one kicked in. <laughs> and suddenly, like the floors were opening up, and the walls were collapsing, and people were melting, and things were turning inside out. And I was I had the presence of mind to realize that the second hit of acid couldn't have hit in like those two minutes. So this was just the first fucking hit of acid. And I was in for it. And I'm not a big fan of hallucinogens. I'd never done mushrooms before. I'd never done acid since that one time in college. I did acid and stopped, never did it again. And so I'm like, holy fuck, I'm really fucked. Um, and here's this detail I've omitted. 
I was in drag in a gay bar on Halloween. <laughs> and I was the MC, host, and judge of the costume contest at midnight. And since I was the host, I'd gotten there at about 9 o'clock. So I'd had that first hit at about 9.05, and the second hit at about 9.45. And so by 10, I was like fucked up on acid. And by 10.30, I was fucked up on acid. And just in a, in a terrible way. Like it was not, I was not having a good time, but I was also trapped. I couldn't leave. I'm a workaholic. Like I had a job to do that night and I, and I couldn't leave. And even if I wanted to leave, I couldn't find my way out of the bar. <laughs> And of course, you know, they tried to put a microphone in my hand and it's like it was the bar owner who gave me the acid. So it wasn't like he, it was his bad. He fucked up his own night at the bar. And I, 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 was, I was helpless and useless and terrified because I'd never really done hallucinogens uh, except for that one time in college where it was very subtle. And no one had told me that in the intervening decade, acid had either gotten so much stronger or we really weren't getting very good acid in the cornfields in downstate Illinois in 1985. <laughs> and so word spread through the bar that I was fucked up on acid, which is why I didn't make any sense and why I looked so scared. And it was like waving a red flag in front of a hundred faggy bulls. Because then people wanted to fuck with me. Because I was fucked up on acid. And they were in Halloween costumes. And what could be more fun than leaping out at me or running up to me or just standing in front of me staring. And it got to a point where I couldn't trust the floor would be there anymore. Like... It was scary. I was like, I had the presence of mind to know I was standing at that place that you'd read about that people don't come back from. And I was like, wow, this is fucking scary. And I didn't know what to do and I couldn't host the contest. So I uh, resigned like Pope Benedict. <laughs> I will not be hosting the contest. I shall not be Pope tonight. And I didn't, and I was, nothing was there. Not, I didn't know where I started in the world. I ended and the world began and I couldn't judge space. And I, the floor was opening up in front of me and the walls were disappearing. And everybody was in fucking Halloween costumes <laughs> in a gay bar. And so I walked up to the bar, which was covered in drinks because Halloween is a big gay night. Uh, not as big as it used to be, but still big. And I just took my hand and I went like this. <laughs> and I knocked everybody's fucking drinks off the bar so that I could leap up there in my little latex dress and my high boots and my big boobs and my hair and just grip the bar and sit there waiting for this to pass. And, um, and I couldn't look at the bar. I was just staring straight ahead because if I looked at the bar, it would disappear and my hands would go through it. But if I just didn't look, I could white knuckle my way through the night sitting on the bar. And here's the thing about... You know, me and drugs, like, I do not have an addictive personality. I have tried most drugs and gone, wow, that was fun. I'll do that again sometime in 10 or 15 years. I don't understand people who do a drug 
and then do it all the time because you destroy what's fun about that drug. Then you have to do the drug for it to be Tuesday morning in the rain and going to work as opposed to some euphoric out-of-body experience. Like you ruin the drug if you do it a lot. So if you do a drug once and it's great, you put that drug up on a shelf and you don't do it again for a very long time. So that's kind of my relationship with drugs, except for pot, which isn't a drug, it's oxygen. <laughs> Enhanced oxygen techniques, that's pot. <laughs> Too soon. Um, so that's my relationship with drugs. I have a very sort of easy breezy, non-stressful, non-addictive kind of relationship with drugs. I'm just addicted to work and dick. Those are my addictions. Um, but I have a really complicated relationship with gay bars. I've, I've never felt comfortable in gay bars. I remember going into the first gay bar I ever went to, The Bushes on Halstead Street in Chicago when I was a teenager, and it felt like passing through an airlock. There were two doors. It literally felt like, you know, 2001. You're going through this airlock and your ears popped when you got inside because it's the first time in your life everybody was like you and you weren't behind enemy lines trying to pretend and pass and you weren't scrutinizing yourself for evidence of gayness that might give you away. You could relax. And that lasted about 11 minutes, that feeling of relaxation, before I realized that rather than being scrutinized by my peers and my parents and my siblings for evidence of gayness, I was being scrutinized by other gay people for evidence of hotness or wanna fuck you-ness. And that scrutiny, that male gaze thing that women rightly complain about is really suffocating. And I don't react well to it. I'm really a spaz about it. So my relationship with gay bars is really, I'm not, I'm not comfortable in gay bars, I'm not relaxed in gay bars, unless I have a job to do, like host the costume contest on Halloween, which I wasn't doing that night. I was just gripping the end of the table for three and a half hours. <laughs> and I still have this complicated relationship with gay bars, and that's one of the reasons I really liked doing drag. When I first moved to Seattle, I started doing drag, and I did it for years, and I was really pretty. I have pictures in my phone, if anybody wants to challenge me on that. After I can prove it, straight guys wanted to fuck me. That's how pretty I was. Straight guys would say, I'll let you give me a blowjob. And I would say, right after you finish blowing me, I will blow you. And some of them took me up on it. <laughs> but drag would make me comfortable in gay bars because when you put drag on in a gay bar, you are stepping outside of the contest. You are not, the, the, the guy, no one wants to have sex with you except the odd straight guy very odd straight guy might want to have sex with you, but you have removed yourself from the like scrutiny, the male gaze, the who wants to, you're not being sorted. And everybody does that in gay bars, including me, this thing I'm complaining about, I do. Everybody looks around and sorts people into would fuck and wouldn't fuck. Want to talk to you, don't want to talk to. And that's like the meat markety thing about a gay bar. And that's nothing necessarily wrong with gay bars or gay culture. Like there are straight bars that are like that. They're meat markets. They're places people go to present their asses like baboons and say, fuck me, right? And there are certain straight bars like that, but all gay bars are that. Because gay people who don't want to go to a gay bar like that go to a regular bar. They go to the straight bars that aren't straight meat markets, which are actually everybody bars and regular bars. But you know, you're presenting your baboon big red ass in a gay bar all the time, unless you're in drag. And it's like putting on a Roman collar, what putting on a Roman collar used to mean, which was, I'm a celibate and I'm removed from the sexual contest. Now, of course, it means I fucked your kid. <laughs> and so to be in drag in a gay bar, I would be comfortable. Except that one night when I was on acid. 
And it lasted about three and a half hours, and everything was, uh, the only way I can describe it is things were boiling. Like, it just felt like the world was at a boil. Those bubbles, that churn, like a pot, of, and everything was turning inside out, and people were exploding and melting, and walls were this infinite space. And it, I was fine for about three hours, and then I had to pee. And when you can't feel the end of yourself and the beginning of the rest of creation, that thing you have to do where you release to urinate is very difficult. And at this point, my roommate Tom, thank God, he was such a great guy, had showed up at the bar and found me. And this is pre-cell phones because I couldn't start texting people in a panic to come save me. Tom came and found me and I said, I have to pee, but I can't find the bathroom or my penis. <laughs> and I don't... I don't want uh, to pee here on the bar. And the bartenders are already really mad at me because when I did this, I knocked, I don't know how many glasses into the ice chests where they shattered. <laughs> so Tom walked me, carried me to the bathroom and stood me in front of the toilet and pulled my pantyhose down <laughs> and my latex skirt up and held my dick and pointed it at the toilet and stood there holding my dick for the 40 minutes it took me <laughs> to let go and pee into this toilet. And then the bar was closed and they threw us out and we had to walk home. And it was a little eventful. We were chased at one point, which is not fun when you're in drag and you're on acid and still really fucked up. And we get home and then it was always a little weird to take the makeup off when you're not fucked up on acid, but to take the makeup off when you are, when you're, you're, you're looking in the mirror, you're already melting. You haven't touched a thing and you're fucking melting and then you pull your eyelashes off. And you know how like a slice of cheese pizza will do that string of cheese thing and you're like trying to break the string of cheese? I'm doing that with my eyelashes and then washing my face and the makeup is just running down my face and my chest and you know, I had tits and then I didn't have tits. The tits sort of floated away into the universe. I had this big head of hair and my head was this big and then my head was this tiny little pin because the hair had gone away. And this lasted, this trip really lasted till the next morning. And I haven't done acid since. Acid then went onto a very high shelf. And in retrospect, it was an okay experience, even though it was very embarrassing. Thank God. Let's just pause here for a moment. Thank God this was pre-Instagram. <laughs> Pre-Vine. Pre-blogging. Pre-everyone having a telephone in their pocket with a video camera on it. Because there would be evidence of this night. And I, I put the acid up on the highest shelf. Like, never, ever, ever. I, I don't think I could do acid again because I don't want to be back there. Which brings me back to gay bars. I still go. My, my husband really is at home in gay bars and likes to go. So I go with him and I get high on marijuana, enhanced oxygen techniques. And I go with him and I'm fine, even if I don't have anything to do. But I still feel this conflict about being in a gay bar because I don't want to be looked at like that. I don't want to be weighed and measured and assessed and sorted, right? And I say that as a hypocrite, because I am in that gay bar weighing and measuring and sorting myself at the same time. It's men do that. That's what we do. We are testosterone pickled dick monsters. 
<laughs> but something kind of magic has happened to me in the last five-ish years. I used to do drag, because you would put on the drag and then you were outside of that weighing and measuring and sorting. You had stepped out of it. And now I'm old. <laughs> now I'm 50. Now I have gray hair and I am out of it. Right? I have, I have been removed. It used to be I would have to do drag to wrench myself out of that sexual marketplace. I would have to disguise myself, bury myself in makeup and wigs and latex dresses and tits to be free from that assessment, that judging, that sorting. But age has sort of lifted me to this place where I am now free from it without drag. And I am a little more ironically comfortable in gay bars now as a 50-year-old who is not in competition anymore than I was as a 24-year-old or a 25-year-old or a 35-year-old, which just seems so ironic because the usual rap on gay bars is the older you get, the less welcome you feel, the more judged and dismissed you feel. And I feel the opposite. I feel, some guys complain about this, I feel invisible in a gay bar and I love it. I used to make myself invisible with drag in gay bars, and now age has made me invisible, and I can move through the room like a ghost, and no one sees me. I'm happy that there are gay bars. I really am. But I think I'm like an American Jew and how an American Jew feels about Israel. I'm happy to have a homeland. I don't want to live there. Thank you very much. That is all for this episode, folks. This is the new pornographers behind me now. And listen, Risk is live in New York City and in Los Angeles every fourth Thursday. We're at The Pit in New York on January 22nd. And we are at the Nerdist Showroom in Los Angeles on that same night, January 22nd. In New York on that night, we will have the great Tara Clancy. <laughs> and in Los Angeles on that night, we will have the insane Andy Dick. On the 24th of January, we are in San Francisco 
We're back at Sketchfest, and man, what a lineup. We have James Adomian, Leo Allen, Janine Burrito, uh, not Burrito, <laughs> Burrito, and Dominic Dierkes and DC Pearson. Great lineup on January 24th uh, in San Francisco. Come out and see us. Then finally on February 6th, we are in the Chapel Hill Carborough area. But don't just come. Pitch us. We still need stories. The theme is mad love for that night. So if you live in Chapel Hill or Carborough, my goodness, pitch us your stories. You can go to risk-show.com slash submissions and let us know your craziest mad love stories. Love for anything or anyone. And finally, if you like what we do, please spread the word. Get on Twitter, get on Facebook, both places. We're at Risk Show. And uh, on Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. You can find everything you want to know about Risk at risk-show.com. Keep in mind, we are a Maximum Fun podcast, and we're part of this wonderful network, the Maximum Fun Network. We're listener-supported there, so if you like what we do, please donate. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or make a one-time contribution today, and be sure to earmark it for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Let's just pause here for a moment. Thank God this was pre-Instagram. <laughs> Pre-Vine. Pre-blogging. Pre-tut. 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 P